Turn with me, please, this afternoon to the first Samuel chapter 27. First Samuel chapter 27. Thanks for most of the grand church for being for us today. First Samuel 27, I'll read the first few verses only for the chapter. David said in his heart, I shall not perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall spare me to seek me any more than any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of his hand. And David arose, and he passed over with the six hundred men that were with him on the Achish, the son of Mayoch, king of Gath. And I trust the Lord to bless the reading of his own inspired, precious word. Um, please keep your Bibles open when we turn the number passes through it um, the rest of this afternoon. If we're looking for examples of how to deal with a range of life situations as a believer, then David is always a good character for us to consider. The scriptures take particular interest, and in this king, where we read all about how he as a young boy grew up to be the greatest king of Israel would ever know, with all the ups and all the downs along the way. For David, the story begins with the visit of of the prophet Samuel, as you will know, he was able to overlook the outer appearance, look past David's obvious weaknesses and the perceived strength of others to choose the man who God desired to do his work. And young David, we can see someday who was regarded as worthless, as weak and small, but yet he was used to do great things for his Lord. Men's opinions, and even our own opinions of ourselves, are far from always right. At age of 11, a young boy was ejected from a, a youth football team due to his height or, or lack of height, caused by a growth hormone deficiency that stunted his growth, meaning that he would be small in stature. There's thought he'd be too small, too weak, too easily pushed off the ball. Even today, he stands only five foot seven, but it's safe to say that he's been on to prove a few people wrong. That young boy's name was Lionel Messi. A few months back, with the lifting of the World Cup in guitar, he, in many people's opinion, is um, now regarded as the greatest player ever to kick. Football. His lack of physical attributes and meanness that was nobody could ever get near him. David also began life as an underdog story, but more often than not, David was an example of a faithful living. He began as a faithful head and young shoulders, shoulders, easy for me to say, and developed into a mighty king and into a mighty psalmist. When we think of the name David in the Bible, we think of many desirable qualities, we think of his boldness and his courage, and we think of his great faith and his love of nature. He was without doubt a great leader, and many have been blessed the other day from the inspired writings that we find in the Bible in our hands. And even though he made mistakes along the way, God still described him as a man after God's own heart. But this morning I want to take a bit of time to, to look at two short passages and reflect on how David deals with the distress that he faces in them. In both passages he, he faces similar circumstances, but he deals with them in very, in very different and almost opposing ways. And the first one is the passage that we just read there in 1 Samuel chapter 27, 1-2. And David's coming off a, a spiritual high, so to speak, because in the previous chapter he, he's once again being pursued by, by King Saul. He wants to kill him and remove him as well from what he saw as a threat. So Saul and his army, they, they chase after David and his men. But David catches wind of this, and, and in fact he sneaks into the king's camp, and while they're all in deep sleep, one of the men which with David they actually requests that, that they finish off Saul once and for all. They get rid of him, the end his life from the wrong, and, and he go back to living a, a normal and a peaceful existence. But David, he spares his life. And we read in verse 10 to 11 of the previous chapter, it says, David said that, furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, 
or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. David was happy in the situation that he was in, as dire as it is to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord, to trust that he was in control and, and his timing is perfect. He could have instructed the servant to slay the man who's trying to kill him, but no, he spares him, and even later on in this chapter, he returns to Saul, the spear that he had taken to let him know that his defences had been breached. He was willing to wait on the Lord. Friends, how good are we at waiting on the Lord? But knowing that he is the one who is in control, knowing that God's foresight is perfect. In 1867, the United States purchased the territory now known as Alaska from Russia. It was then Secretary of State William Seward who negotiated the deal by a vast expense of land for $7.2 million, a lot of money back then. Although it had a strategic importance in the North Pacific Ocean, Skeptics still doubt the purchase of Alaska as sewage folly, that's how it became known for many years, sewage folly, thinking that the Secretary of State had wasted the country's reserves on purchasing nothing but snow, snow and ice. But years later, its decision was vindicated after colossal gold mines were discovered in the region, and then years after that, even more colossal oil reserves were also discovered. All of a sudden, William Seward's folly made way for a wonderful foresight that was unquestionable, and it was extremely profitable. God's foresight and God's timing is perfect. Isaiah 40 verse 31 says, But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We don't wait on the Lord so that he may change our situation. We wait on the Lord so that he might change us. And so that he might renew us. But as chapter 26 comes at end, so does this faithful attitude at the end. For what we find in the first two verses is the beginning of a demise which leads to 16 long months of perpetual disobedience from David. Look again in that first one. And David said that in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel, so shall I escape out of his hand. We know four things from this opening verse about how David ended up in the path that he was on. Firstly, we see David's direction. First one opens up with, and David said in his heart. And David said in his heart. There is his first mistake, his wrong direction. He reviews the situation, and then he talks to himself, and he gives himself his own counsel. And I suppose there's not necessarily anything wrong speaking to ourselves in this way, but ultimately it depends on what kind of advice we're giving ourselves, doesn't it? When I was in school, and they would have taught an ICT class, maybe they still teach it, but computers work. On the basis of giggle, standing for garbage in, garbage out. If you put garbage in the computer, you're only going to get garbage out. It can't take nonsense and turn it into sense. But David here has left his position of waiting on the Lord, and now he's starting to convince himself of another plan. He's speaking to feed him, seeking to feed himself with information. David's direction is wrong. One of the characteristics of this passage and of, of this time of, of David's life is the fact of silence. This great writer has nothing to say about this chapter of his life. So often in David's life, a psalm can be traced back to a particular trial where he pours out his heart to his Lord. And we'll be looking at one end for a second passage in a few moments. But the great psalmist has nothing to say and he's got nothing to pray. He's living completely on the horizontal and trying to size up his own situation. David's direction that was all wrong. It's difficult to understand from the passage why the switch flipped from him. Why he went from waiting on the Lord 
they all of a sudden run in the hell of the Lord. They went from a spiritual high to a spiritual low, which is very often the case in our Bibles. Paul would warn the church of Corinth, Wherefore let him not think if he standeth, take heed, lest he, lest he fall. David lost his direction. I read recently about a social media influencer who's practically one of their favourite things to do on holiday, or when they go to a new place, because they intentionally get lost. Intentionally get lost. They've said that this is how they learn their way around after moving to both New York City and San Francisco. There are still blocks in both cities. They say that they remember solely because that's where they get lost. They would get off the bus, the subway at a random stop, then walk in whatever direction they felt like going. Sometimes they had an end destination in mind and would try to make it there. When they visited Beijing, they did a modified version of this where they would get lost, then find their way back without looking at a map. They called this fun, and they say they saw so many things that they would not have seen if it had just stuck to the route. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a horrible experience to me. Many of us here, I'm sure, don't need to worry about intensity getting lost. Maybe we do it enough unintensely to get the fact that this woman was craving. But for a Christian, being without direction is never a good thing. Being, with, and being in the wrong direction is disastrous as well. David said in his heart, David's direction was wrong. Friends, where our direction comes from is everything. We cannot walk the life of a follower of Christ unless we are only taking our direction from him. Then it was said of us that rather than and we said to our hearts, it's and then the Lord said to our hearts. David's direction, but no second his defeat. First one, and David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. David's defeat, he thinks he's done. He says that one day I will perish at the hand of Saul. I may have escaped last time and time before that, but only a matter of time before the king eventually removes the one who sees as his threat. He's done with the stress, he's done with life on the run, and in hiding and he missed the faith. It's a lapse of faith on David's part. We love to read the story of David in his younger days as he stood in front of the giant Goliath, and as all those around him already had admitted the faith, and as all they had a lapse of faith, David stood strong in the faith of his Lord. But here we are now, and the same man who wouldn't admit the faith to the giant admits the faith to himself. He says in his heart, I shall not perish one day by the hand of Saul. Friends, this afternoon, I wonder, are we sitting here listening in Grange or listening online? And we possess this defeated attitude. Maybe we're defeated in our prayer life, we just don't see any fruit or any results as quickly as we would like. Maybe we're defeated in our devotion, perhaps that time we spend with the Lord isn't as precious as it once was or that should be. And maybe we're defeated in our service, perhaps we possess in our hearts that the effort and the toil isn't quite worth the inconvenience. David has admitted defeat, but realise that he's admitted defeat in the face of all the evidence. He's admitted defeat in the face of all the evidence. Samuel anointed David to be king. God used people in his life, such as Abigail and Jonathan, to remind him that David one day will be king. In fact, even Saul admitted to this in 1 Samuel 24 20, when he says, And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the king of Israel shall be established in my hand. In light of all logic, in light of all that God had promised him through the prophet Samuel, through his friends, and even through his enemy, David's the midst of defeat. So friends, when our prayers seem to be only hitting the ceiling, we know that we should be careful for nothing, but everything by prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving and request be made known unto God. When we're defeated in our devotion, when we know that if we draw an eye on the Lord, that he will draw an eye on us. And when we're defeated in service, we know that God's from God's word. A God's words shall not return unto him void, 
or that I shall accomplish that which pleases him, and that I shall prosper in the thing where to God sent it. David's direction, David's defeat, but thirdly notice David's doubt. He says halfway through verse 1, There is nothing better for me than I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. He's moved from his first mistake, which was speaking to himself with his own advice. He's then had a second mistake where he's admitted defeat. And one way or another, Saul is going to get him to this third mistake where now we see that he thinks there's nothing better for him than to escape. David's doubt. Again, we think about him before Goliath. He wasn't trying to escape them. He wasn't doubting no response from them. But now he is. And surely that in itself is a simple illustration of the spiritual victories of, of yesteryears, of previous days, aren't enough to deal with any doubts or the feelings of defeat of today or tomorrow. We rely on the victory to give us strength each and every moment. We praise him that we read in Lamentations 3, 23-23, as if the Lord's mercies were not consumed, because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. David says there is nothing good to come from him. I wonder, as you look forward to labour, are you stuck in that same mindset? That your spiritual life has peaked, so to speak, that you'll never be as close to fellowship to the Lord as you once were, and you'll never be enjoy being a servant and service to Him as maybe you were many years ago. It doesn't mean any better from here. Maybe we have doubted about God's character, even those who close to Christ doubted Him, doubted him in the past. John the Baptist, in fact, sent two of his disciples to Christ to ask, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? In Matthew 11, 3, John the Baptist doubted Christ's authority. The disciples in the storm would ask Christ's master, Carest thou not that we perish? The disciples, well, they won't doubt, doubt in Christ's care. And then, of course, we have Thomas, who was acting towards the doubt, and became part of his title. He doubted the resurrection, and in turn, he doubted the power of Christ. I read that someone described doubt as the gap between our current faith and perfect faith. The gap between our current <coughs> and perfect faith. And that, if that is the case, we all doubt. But the question is, how big is that gap between the two for us? Maybe recently you find yourself doubting God's power, God's care, maybe even God's love through whatever has happened or has happened in, in your life or the life of a loved one. An American pastor said, never trade what you don't know for what you do know. Never trade what you don't know for what you do know. And that's what David did. He traded his knowledge that one day he will be king for what he didn't know. As in how on earth is he ever going to escape from the hands of Saul? Friends, if you doubt this afternoon, I encourage you to adopt, that, to adopt that approach. Don't focus on what you don't know, but rather focus on what we do know. If you doubt how God can ever care for someone like me, then remember that we know that we can cast all our care upon him if he cares for us. If you doubt how loving God can let me go through this, then remember that we know that God in his very character is love. And if you doubt why God will answer your prayer for salvation of that loved one, then remember that we know that God is not willing that any should perish but it all should come to repentance. David's direction is defeat, is doubt, but finally in this passage we see his demise. David's demise. He says in verse 1, there's nothing better for me that I should speedily escape into the land of Philistines. And then in verse 2 we read, that when David arose and he passed over with the 600 men that were with him unto Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. Everybody made a lot of comparisons with already with David as he stood before Goliath, those years ago. But here's another one, and this is probably the most notable one. Previously he went to battle with the Philistines, previously he defeated the Philistines, now he's going to dwell with them. He's got to the point where he thinks the best thing to do is just to go to the Philistine camp, because at least there he will have peace and solve for good reason once. 
Jeff Fruits and the Philistine land. And what a picture that is of the carnal Christian who, one who's actively decided to live in disobedience. This is not a, a snap decision for David, with no possibility of, of coming to his senses, no, but with every footstep towards Philistine camp, he took in disobedience. And his carnality didn't just affect him, we read in the following verses that he dragged many always with him. David was a leader and he led them astray, his family and his fighting men. I don't intend to go through the rest of this chapter now, but what follows in 16 months of the 16 months of compromise, of dishonesty, and despair and depression. If you if you want to pick the chapter 30 and verse 3 to 4 of First Samuel, we read the verses that so David and his men came to the city and beheld it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. And then we read that then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. David's demise led to a point where he cries until he no longer has the strength to cry anymore. David grew tired of running from Saul. He became aware of living his life in fear. And we've seen his directions to feed his doubt and his demise. Friends, that's one way to deal with our distress. Certainly not one way to, to emulate. But turn me back a few chapters, please, to 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22. So the first two verses of chapter 22 we want to focus on, but we'll go back and read from verse 10 of chapter 21 for the context. 21 verse 10. And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul, and went to Achish the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said unto him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him and dances, saying, Saul hath sent his thousands, and David his ten thousands? And David laid up those words in his heart, and was sore afraid of Achish the king of Gath. And he changed his behaviour before them, and feigned himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled on, the, scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Achish unto his servants, Lo, you see the man is mad. Wherefore then have you brought him to me? Have I need of mad madmen? that he had brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence. Shall this fellow come into my house? David therefore departed hence, and escaped to the key of Adam, and when his brethren and on his father's house heard it, they went down to treat him. And every one that was in distress, and every one that was in debt, and every one that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him, and he became a captain over them, and they were with him about four hundred men. Once again we come across David, in a time of, of distress and dilemma. His life has, has spiralled in, in recent times. He's lost his job, his wife, his closest friend. And now as we've just read, we can see that he's lost his very dignity. As his saliva streams down his face and he pretends to be a madman. What a fall from grace for one who was heralded as a national treasure. The one who the people would sing off as the numbers of people he'd seen in the great victories. And now here he is and he's at, he's at the bottom. And so chapter 22 begins in a similar way to the previous chapter we read, chapter 27. David is in distress. But in chapter 22 we see a different response. And it starts, it starts out in a similar vein with David escaping. The first one tells us, therefore David departed thence and escaped to keep back to them. And I, I don't tend to be an expert in the geography of the region by any stretch, but I, from what I could do, I've been around. In the location of this cave is thought to be over in the Valley of Vila. That's the, the valley where Goliath stood and, and taunted the, the Israel army. And so David seeks out this cave in order to hide, hide from Saul. The word Adjan actually means refuge, and it was there that David 
We find physical refuge, but also there that we seek to find a spiritual refuge that he so desperately needed. And maybe you cast over your eye over the two verses we just read at the beginning of chapter 22 here, and maybe wondering, well, what exactly is different here from what happened previously in chapter 27? Again, after all, we have David in distress, and he's ran, and he's escaped from the hands of Saul. Well, the difference here is not found in these two verses. It's not found in the rest of the chapter, or even in the the rest of the account of 1 Samuel. Rather, the difference can be seen when we turn to the Psalms. You remember in the last dilemma we looked at, which David found himself in, we noted that we don't read any communication between himself and his Lord at that time. Instead, he says to himself, he counsels himself, and essentially puts his head down, puts the blinkers on, and starts heading in the wrong direction. And there are many who just put the blinkers on and take the wrong direction in life and don't consider where they're going. The husband once called his wife on a mobile to warn her about this crazy driver on the news who's speeding down the motorway in the wrong direction. She replied, I know, but there's not just one, there's hundreds of them. <laughs> David was heading in the wrong direction, with no, no intent on turning. But now in chapter 1, chapter 22, verse 1, we can see that David has paused, he takes time to talk to his Lord. But not just to talk to his Lord, he takes time to pour his heart out to the Lord in a way that he often does in the Psalms. So we're going to focus mainly on, on Psalm 34. But turn with me first, first read to Psalm 142. Psalm 142, I just want to pick out a few verses from Psalm 142. And here we can see where David's heart is during this time. And your Bible maybe has a title for that Psalm. Mine is a prayer when he was in the cave. A psalm of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. But I want to point out a few verses here which show the level of his distress. Look at verse 2. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. David lays out his thoughts on, on the table before his door. He poured out his complaint. There are not many in our lives who really want to listen to this or really want to listen to us as we pour our complaints out to them, but our Lord does. Verse 4. I looked on my right hand and beheld there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cares for my soul. David here feels alone and abandoned. He feels that nobody on this earth cares about him. And then look at verse 7. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal righteously with me. David is so low and so desperate that he feels that his soul is in a prison. He is trapped with no hope and no escape. Friends, this afternoon, take a moment to picture the scene here that David is in. Picture David, the early one morning or late some evening, in the middle of nowhere, amongst the hills, in this dark and dark cave, he grabs something to write on and something to write with, and he begins to pen the words of this psalm. Lord, no man cares for my soul. Lord, bring my soul out of prison. As we look down and we zoom out of this further from our view, we maybe begin to see others that in the distance or begin to congregate on this location, which verse 1 tells us that his family arrives. And when his brethren and Saul's father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And then after his family arrives, we see that in verse 2 that everyone else seems to arrive. And everyone that was in distress, everyone that was in death, everyone that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain of them, and there was with, were with him about 400 men. Just what David needed when he was in distress himself. Others, distressed and death, discontented men came to join him. They really must have been a sight, a band of very unmarried men. But yet, in the midst of this, David's not lost sight of his God. In his trouble, he cries out to his Lord and pours out his heart to him in Psalm 142. One of my favourite songs, which brings you back to that camp, 
I was on when I was 15 or 16, is the song, My Troubled Soul. My troubled soul, why so weighed down? You were not made to bear this heavy load. Cast all your burdens upon the Lord. Jesus cares. He cares for you. Jesus cares. He cares for you. And all of your worrying won't help you make it through. Cast all your burdens upon the Lord. And trust again in the promise of his love. David's soul was weighed down. And he cast his burdens upon the Lord. Believe his presbytery or listen to all mine. Is your soul troubled? Are you weighed down? Then very simply, pour your burdens off the Lord, just like David did. Well, turn with me, please, to Psalm 34. Psalm 34, we need to see another psalm that's David wrote at this time. And the Andrew Bible, the title of the psalm, um, mine said, A psalm of David when he changed his behavior before a gun neck, and um, he drove him away and he departed. Psalm 4, and for the sake of time, remember you read the first, repeat the first half, read the first ten verses. I will bless the Lord at all times, his praise shall continue to be in my mouth. My soul shall make her ghost in the Lord, the humble shall fear that will often be bad. For magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked upon him, unto him, and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about him, that fear him, and delivered them. So taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear the Lord, ye saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. Young lions do lack, and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. As we read through this, the first ten verses of, of the psalm, uh, at this time, whenever um, David has changed behavior, he's, he's met man, um, and he's departed, then we clear that the, from the sentiments which David has expressed, that David has learned from his God in this cave. How sad is the time that we move from cave to cave in our lives, but we don't, we don't seem to learn from them. We don't seem to grow closer to God. Well, not David. In the time that I have remaining, let's just look at a few points in the first half of the Psalm Brief. As we see what David learned while he was in this cave. First, we see that he learned that his Lord deserves. His Lord deserves. In verses 1 to 3, we see that his Lord, he's learned that his Lord deserves. David only recently acted like a fool, like a madman. But in these three verses, he resolves to give the omniscient and the wise, all wise one, the true praise. He says, You have blessed the Lord at all times. Even in his distress, he can still praise the Lord. Even in his distress, his Lord still deserves to be praised. And what a great position that is to get to. Friends, I wonder if you've experienced that situation in your life where others look at you and they wonder how you can even hold it all together. You're still able to lift up your head onto the Lord and give him the praise. From every viewpoint and from every angle of life in which you find yourselves, and we look upon our Savior, still he is worthy to be praised. He admits in verse 2 that he will not boast of himself. This after what must have been an extremely humbling experience and reflection as he had the great craziness to escape. Um, and verse 3 says, We might find the Lord with me, and let's exalt his name together. David, you remember at this point, was surrounded by this band of unmarried men and all those who were discontented and in distress. They come and they join themselves to the psalmist. And here we are now, and we picture him turning to them and saying, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and then exalt his name together. 
Then we almost doing that during those dark days of COVID. How good it is to be able to gather with believers and to praise the one who is worthy of our praise. Friends, wherever you're in, whether you're in the equivalent of a cave or on a mountaintop, we can say that David and his crowd of cave dwellers, our God is worthy to be praised. David in the cave has learned that his Lord deserves to be observed as praise. But not only that, he's also learned that his Lord listens. His Lord listens. Verses 4 to 6. We've seen, in, we've seen in Psalm 142 that David was not afraid to pour his heart out, heart out onto his Lord. Um, but in verse 4 we read, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Very simply, but David sought, God heard, and God delivered. And the verse we read back in 1 Samuel 21, before David pretends to go mad, we read of his fear of the king of Gath. And now that fear is made way for deliverance. In these three verses we see David's direction. Verse 4, I sought the Lord. Verse 5, they looked on, on to him. Verse 6, this poor man prayed. The more we can think about our Lord, the less we think about ourselves, the better. And David has learnt that his Lord listens. Friends, this morning, are we talking too much to ourselves about our problems and not talking enough to the Lord about them? But finally, we see that David has learnt that his Lord is all sufficient. Verses, verses 8 to 10. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. O fear the Lord, ye saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. O taste and see that the Lord is good. After being thrown out of Gath, after his disobedience against his God, after letting his Lord down, David looks around at this cave and those gathered around him, and with this new perspective, as he looks in the surroundings, he can say, taste and see that the Lord is good. And here in this verse, he sends out an invitation. He invites himself. He invites a group of cave dwellers. And all these years later, as we read the psalm we read this morning, he invites us to do the same. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Believe this morning, as you look back on your last week, surely you can testify to the Lord's goodness. Whether that be material goodness, whether it be spiritual goodness. Paul could say in Ephesians 1 and 3, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. As we picture David in this cave, and we imagine the scene, possibly David has heard the threatening growl of a, of a hungry young lion among the hills. And so he, as he listens to he forms towards the call first hand, the young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Even a creature as powerful and as powerful as a lion still hungers, they still want, they still lack. But for the child of God, who is in Christ, who is no condemnation, who is indwelt by his spirit for a guide, who knows what it is that sins forgiven, who walks with the Savior daily, they shall not want any good spiritual thing. Of course, David would say elsewhere that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David has learnt that the Lord is all he needs. Friends, surely we can say the same. The Lord is all we need for life, He's all we need for death, and He's all we need for eternity. As I wrap up this, this afternoon, we can reflect on the comparison between the two situations we've just read. In the first passage, we've seen David's wrong direction, which led to his defeat, his doubt, and his demise. In the second passage, we've seen David's right direction. And from that, we can see that David learned that his Lord deserves, his Lord listens, and that his Lord provides. But pay close attention to the fact that in both of these sequences of behaviours, but they start with a direction. As David heads down to the land of Philistines, he saw his direction was inward. He said to himself, 
As he ducks into the cave, we see his direction was fixed on the Lord. He lifted his voice to him on multiple occasions. Believe this morning, when the days are tough, when the moments are tough, when you take refuge, when you duck into the cave, in what direction do you turn? Where do you find your encouragement? In the second passage, when David's strength was, was failing and discouragement had cornered him, David cries out from his place of refuge to his source of refuge. Friends, I trust that for these, those times of our lives, whether we be on the rising top, as I say, or in the cave, that we have shared David's refuge and David's shelter, that we will taste and see that the Lord is good, because blessed is the man that trusts in him.